Good evening. It is good to see everyone here tonight. It is time to begin. So we will begin with the word of prayer, and then we will be in Acts chapter 17. Let's pray. Our dear Father in heaven, we're so very thankful, Lord, for the opportunity we have to come before you tonight and to offer praise to you as our God and creator. Our Father, we're thankful for your goodness and your grace and for the love that you've bestowed upon us. We're thankful for your long-suffering and your patience. We're thankful for your Son. Our Father, we're thankful for the rich blessings that you give us as well as the discipline that you give us. We're thankful for your Word that we have to guide us in all things and the opportunity to study it tonight. Our Father, help us to be hungry for it and to spend time with it, realizing that it is the true need for us in this world. Our Father, we pray that you'll bless the Willow Avenue Church of Christ. We pray that you will bless our elders and our preachers and our deacons. We pray that the work that we do will reach souls and that it will glorify you. Our Father, we pray for our country. We pray for our leaders. We know that many bad decisions are being made that are contrary to your word. Father, we know, though, that you control all things. We ask, Lord, that you would be with us through our study tonight. Guide us. We pray that you'll forgive us of our sins. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we are in Acts chapter 17, and we're just going to jump right in here and uh, look at the map. This is, of course, the second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. And just to do a quick review, he begins in Antioch, of um, uh, just, just be, uh, uh, above uh, Jerusalem, and he is going to travel to Lystra, where he's going to pick up Timothy. Then he's going to go to another Antioch. This is Antioch of Pisidia. Then, of course, he's going to make this trip to Troas, then to Philippi. While he's in Philippi, he converts Lydia. Uh, he cast out the demon from the demon-possessed girl. You've got uh, the Philippian jailer. Then he travels to Thessalonica. While he's in Thessalonica, the people are not receptive, and they cause an uproar. They take Jace, the people from Jason's house, and they bring him out in the public, and they beat him. He leaves there. He goes to Berea, and we have the very well-known passage, Acts 17, 11. Now, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Uh, that's kind of an understatement, isn't it, considering what they did in Thessalonica? But the Bereans searched the Scriptures daily, whether those things were so. Then the people from Thessalonica come to Berea, and they make a, a big ruckus. And Paul leaves, and he goes to Athens. And that's where we're going to pick up, is right here in Athens. And on this map, it's down here. And two weeks ago, I gave you an introduction to the city of Athens, and we looked at some videos, and we're going to glance at those just to bring us up to speed tonight. When Paul lands in Athens, it appears that he probably went by water. He's got a long walk from the boat into the city, and we'll look at that when we look at the map. One of the main features of the city is this large hill called the Acropolis. And this is what it looks like in modern day. And this is an artist rendition of what it would have looked like in Bible times. Uh, this is a picture that I found. It's actually a painting that was done by a visitor in 1869. I thought that was interesting. And this is a picture of the Parthenon uh, that is in Nashville. This is the replica 
of the Parthenon that sits on top of the Acropolis. And of course, this was a temple for the Greek goddess. Anyone remember her name? Athena, that's right, Athena. Last time I was telling you about this place, and um, I was uh, curious when it was built, and I went back and looked it up because uh, I thought, how long has this been here? And I've forgotten what it was now, but it was like in the 1890s that this was built. And I thought, what in the world possessed the city of Nashville to build this in the 1890s? If anybody wants to Google it, you can tell me the exact year because I've forgotten. But uh, it's been there a long, long time, and I think it was related to the World's Fair is why they built it. Uh, well, after I told you about it, uh, Sherry and I were very curious, and we were going to take a trip to the Ark and uh, visit uh, the replica of Noah's Ark. So on the way, we went through the Parthenon, and we visited and these were some pictures that I took. You can see on the left-hand side, uh, this is me and my wheelchair. This gives you an idea of how tall this thing is. And the next one was me looking up and shooting a picture of it. What I read is this was built as closely as possible to the exact dimensions. And so this is a very good replica. While we were there, what I read was they originally built this for the World's Fair and it was intended to be taken down, but uh, it was very, very popular. And so it was rebuilt uh, a few years later and uh, is exists as we see it today. This was the goddess uh, Athena, and this is what was sitting on, that's, this is what was in this particular, oh, it doesn't work on that one, does it? Oh, there it is. Uh, in this particular structure is the replica that we see in Nashville. It is very, very interesting if you want to go and see it and get an idea of what this is like. I took some other pictures. This is a close-up of her shield, and on the right-hand side is the snake that is beside her. And you can see it's got very intric intricate drawings in it. It is amazing the architecture that went into this and the knowledge that they had to do something like this that long ago. Here's some pictures of the doors and you can see on the left hand side this door is gigantic and I took this one just so that you can see how thick this door is. It's just absolutely huge and so very very impressive structure. So when Paul goes into Athens that's what he's going to see. Up on the hill as you walk into the city, you've got this large um, temple, and it's got several temples. And so why don't we go ahead and stop right now, and um, let's go to the first video that I sent you, Chris. Can we switch over smoothly, or will that be a problem? Okay. Um, I want to look at this, and let's start at 547, because what's going to happen when Paul gets off the boat, he's going to take the trek up into this city, and what he does on the way into the city is he gets angry. He's filled with indignation because he sees all of these gods, in fact, these false gods, these idols. The text is going to say that Paul's spirit was provoked within him. That Greek word literally means agitated, and it carries with it the idea of anger. In fact, it's interesting the word that says his spirit was provoked this is the same word that appears in Acts chapter 15 when he and Barnabas had a sharp contention. It's that same feeling, the sharp contention. 
And the way the language is written, it indicates that as he walked through the city, this just continued. He's got this anger seeing all of these false gods. So immediately, on the Sabbath day, he starts going into the synagogue and teaching the Jews. But that's not enough. His spirit is stirred within him. So he goes into the marketplace. That was called, in Greek, the agora. The marketplace was the place of business. It's where they traded. It's where people went to get information and news, and everyone gathered, and it was the coming and going. You can see, let me see here. Uh, here, before we go to the video, up oh, you can't see mine right now. So let's go ahead and do the video, um, and we will zoom in. What you see right in the middle of the triangle is actually the marketplace. This is a zoom out of the city. Right in the middle, you can see the Acropolis on the peak. And you can see the long road coming into the city. This is a zoom over. You saw the Acropolis off to the left. And then here is the marketplace in the middle. These are some of the buildings, the temples, the businesses that surround the marketplace to give you an idea of what you're looking at. And then you can see the hills back in the distance there where the temples sit. And they have done so much excavating there that they know these specific temples and buildings and were able to go back and label these things. They spent a lot of time in this area doing excavations. Okay, this is back on the top of the Acropolis. That's probably enough for now. Uh, thank you, Chris. If we can swap back to mine. I love having all of this technology available and having guys who know what they're doing back there to operate it, too. So um, at the top, you can see the Acropolis. It is the highest hill in Athens. Just below it, you can see the Areopagus. It is the second highest hill. And it's got a platform. This is where the governmental body uh, would meet and discuss business. And we're going to see this is where Paul ends up in a minute. So this becomes important. This was the zoom out of the city. And you can see in the middle, here's the marketplace. So Paul begins going to the synagogue. I'm not sure where the synagogue is arranged in the city. But he also wants an opportunity to talk to the Gentiles. It's mostly a Gentile city. So he's going to go to the marketplace where people are coming and going. This is, again, a close-up of the marketplace, a zoom out, um, basically the things that we just saw. And now we're back at the Acropolis. Okay, so Paul begins in the synagogue reasoning with the people. 
The word means debating with the people. Then he goes to the marketplace and he starts to do the same thing. When he's in the marketplace, he encounters two groups of philosophers who were prominent in Athens. One was the Epicureans, the other was the Stoics. The Epicureans' main philosophy was eat, drink, and be merry. That is, they believed in fleshly pleasures. Indulge yourself. The Stoics are kind of the opposite. The Stoics were uh, into self-denial, abstain from things. And so what they said to Paul was, we're listening to you. This is very interesting. You need to come to the Areopagus and talk to the crowd that is there. So we're going to pick up here at Acts chapter 17 and verse 19. But David, are you going to read for us? Okay, all right. Acts 17 and verse 19. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. Keep going. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know that these things, therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Okay. They said to him, You've got to, don't just talk in the marketplace, you've got to come to the Areopagus. You can see the Areopagus is down at the bottom. History says that Athens was a university town. It was the source of knowledge. If you wanted to hear a new discovery, if you wanted to hear a new thing, you would go to Athens to learn this. Um, off topic just a little bit, but, you know, it struck me how often even these days I hear people talking about uh, something new. On a, a quite regular basis, I will have people that will contact me and they will say something like this. They will say, um, Don, I've got something that we need to send you because we saw, we've seen your video about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, and we have realized that we haven't been teaching the truth on this in the church. And the reason we found this out is in some recent studies, we have learned that the Greek word pornea for fornication doesn't mean what we thought it has meant for the last 2,000 years. And based on this new understanding, our teaching on marriage and divorce is all wrong. Anytime you hear someone pop up and say something like that, what we have been teaching and what we have in our Bible has been wrong for 2,000 years, and now we have just recently discovered the truth, dismiss them, because that is not going to be accurate. But it's interesting, people are always infatuated with finding something new. I remember in the last few years, people have been infatuated with these supposedly newfound Gospels. Do you remember a few years ago, the big news was the Gospel of Judas was supposedly found. And everyone was talking about uh, the Gospel of Judas. Uh, it's an apocryphal book. It was fake. But anyway, even then, they were infatuated with something that is new. So they bring Paul, they take him to the... Uh, Areopagus, and they let him speak. And last time I showed you a video of that, and uh, I'll hold off, and, uh, and uh, I might show it to you again, but we'll see how time goes. Verse 23, he gets to the Areopagus. He has his chance to address these people. And remember, this is the area down at the bottom here, and you can see that they can look right over their shoulder and see the Acropolis. That is where Athena is. That is their premier god in, or premier goddess in Athens. Okay, let's begin in verse 23, Brother David. 
For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. Okay. Paul starts speaking to these people, and he said, As I was walking around your city, I saw lots of idols. And I even saw an altar, and altars where you would sacrifice something. He said, I even saw an altar to the unknown God. A few years ago, I went to India, and they have a similar thing where there are just statues and images everywhere. And one of them was like this. It is huge, gigantically tall. I've got some pictures of it. But people would come and they would lay food on this altar. And because of that, the altar doesn't eat the food. This image doesn't eat the food. And so there were rats running all around it, eating this food. So as we approached it, the rats would just scurry off. And it was a very nasty, gross thing. But even then, what they would do is they would have their feast. And when they got done, they would take some of the food and they would leave it in front of the altar. And the idea is they were caring for their god or goddess and they would leave the food overnight which is um, going to come into play based on what Paul is going to say in just a minute. So Paul says, as I was walking around, I saw this to an unknown God. This is interesting because he kind of looks for an icebreaker. He, he looks for a way to uh, connect with them. What he is saying to them is, I saw this altar to an unknown God. That is, even you recognize the fact that there is a God, and you recognize the fact that there's a God that you don't know, let me tell you about him. That's a good way to enter this discussion, isn't it? All right, let's keep going. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Okay, he said, I'm going to tell you about this true God. He made the world. You know, this is a very interesting thing. If I can summarize what Paul is saying to these people, he said, I can see that even you recognize that there is a power above you and beyond you. Even you recognize that there's a God that you don't know, and you're right about that. I want to tell you about him. It's interesting that their behavior recognized the fact that there is a God. And uh, if you look at verse number... Uh, let's see, which one is it? Um, is it 20? Yeah, look at verse 22. Uh, then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. What does that mean when he said, I perceive that you are very religious? Yeah, the King James says, you are too superstitious. Now, if I started a speech to a group of people and I said, you know, I perceive that you're too superstitious, how would that be taken? How would that be perceived? Is that positive or negative? That would seem negative, wouldn't it? Uh, you, you folks are too superstitious. What if I said, I perceive that you're very religious people? How would that be perceived? What's that? Yeah, that could, be, that could be perceived as positive. There is controversy over how to translate this phrase. It literally carries with it the idea of being respectful for that which is divine 
And it seems that what Paul is saying is, I can see that you care about spiritual things. Literally, if you want to interpret this phrase literally, it means worshiper of many demons. So they have a hard time translating it. It doesn't seem like Paul said, I can tell that you're the worshiper of many demons. What he's saying is, you respect the fact that there is a power, there's divinity. That's what he's saying to them. So that's a good thing. I think he's opening on a good thing. We've got common ground, and so let's talk about that. And then he said, as I was passing by, I saw lots of examples of that. I even saw, you wanted to be sure that you had all the bases covered, so you were saying there might be a God that we missed. And he said, there is. I want to tell you about that. Isn't this a smooth opening and a good way to talk to people here? I think it is very interesting when you think about this because since the beginning of time, there is something made in man that makes him realize that there is a God. And I think that's what Paul is alluding to. You recognize that there is a power out there. You recognize that there is a deity, and you're saying we may not even know about him, but we, we want to make sure we have all bases covered. What was there inside of man that made him do that? Why were they doing that? You know, Psalm 19 and verse 1 says, The heavens declare what? The heavens declare the glory of God. And what's the second part? And the firmament showeth his handiwork. That is, you can look up into the heavens, and that's probably a reference to the stars and the planets, and it declares the glory of God, the firmament. You look up into the sky, and you can see his handiwork. Now tell me what that verse means. The heavens declare the glory of God. What does that verse mean? Put that in your own words. It's deep, isn't it? Okay. You can look around and know that there's a creator. Could the Athenians do that? Could the Athenians look up into the night sky and understand this came from some supreme power? Yeah. Listen to Romans chapter 1 and verse 20. For since the creation of the world, His, God's, invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal Godhead. Now listen to the last part. So that they are without excuse. You put these verses together, and this is what I got. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. God exists, and we can know that by the things that are made, so that we are without excuse. God has instilled in man the knowledge, the desire to understand that there is one greater, and that desire, that pull, should make you look for God. And you are going to be without excuse because of this. I want you to hold that thought because we're going to come back to it in a minute. Paul is playing on that, and he is saying to them, even you recognize this. You understand that there's a God. You understand that there's, there, there's even one that you're maybe missing. Now let me tell you about him. Verse 24. Brother David? 24. Yeah. 
God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Okay. First, he said, let me tell you about the God who made the world. How would that sit with them when he said, let me tell you about the God, singular? They had a God for everything you can think of, thousands of gods. So when he says to them, let me tell you about the God. Incidentally, how do you mesh the idea of the God with the fact that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are all called God? Okay. Somebody, you know, a few weeks ago I did a sermon on the Godhead. Get you in just a minute. Uh, a few weeks ago I did a sermon on the Godhead, and someone was asking me to explain more afterwards, and I said, think about it this way. You have an eldership. An eldership has to operate as one. Their decisions are one. They are of one mind when they get done, but there are different personalities that make up that eldership. And the Godhead, likewise, is described as one, but there are different personalities within it, and each has different functions within the Godhead. Uh, somebody asked me the other day about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When did the second person of the Godhead become the Son? When he came to this earth, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. When you refer to him before his incarnation, what does the Bible refer to him as? The Word. In the beginning was the Word. So he said, I'm going to tell you about the one God. He is the Lord of the heaven and the earth. They had a God for every single thing. He said, I'm going to tell you about the God who's the God of everything. This God doesn't dwell in temples. Would that have been offensive? Look over his left shoulder as he's talking to these people. You've got the temple to Athena there. I want you to think about this. Not only was this their God or their goddess that they worshipped, this was big business for these people. Do you remember, or we haven't gotten there yet, but in Acts chapter 18, Paul is going to go into Ephesus, and he's going to be preaching this same thing. It's almost a replica of what happens here, but it's not to Athena. In Ephesus, it's who? Do you remember? It's Diana. Well, when he starts preaching against false gods, what happens is people start turning away from um, the, the goddess there, Diana, and they start becoming Christians, and some of the craftsmen get really, really mad, and they attack Paul. Because what happened is, just like this temple, there were merchants who would surround the temple, and people would make this, it's like a vacation. Where are we going to go on vacation? Well, let's go to Athens. And so it was a tourism thing. People would come to Athens, they would bring money, People who were merchants would set up in the marketplace, and you know what they would sell? They would sell little replicas of the goddess, Athena. They would sell little models of the temple. You know how you can go to a place today? A few years ago, I went to the Statue of Liberty, and at, uh, in the store, you can buy a little model of the Statue of Liberty, and I bought, it was the same thing. So silversmiths and gold um, makers, they would carve these things, and they would sell them, and this is big business for these people. Look how big these buildings are. 
And they had priests and priestesses who worked here. This is tourism for them. It brings in visitors. There was a lot of meat that was sold and was used in the feast to these gods and goddesses. They had temple prostitutes. So much center. You can see this is the center of that city. So when Paul says to them, there's only one God, and you look over there, and there are temples. This is the biggest one, but there are small. In fact, there's another temple next to it that's a little bit smaller. There's temples all over this city. You've got to think about what he's saying here is going to disrupt everything about their lives in this city. He said, I'm going to tell you about the one God. He doesn't dwell in temples. He made the heaven and the earth. Think about the argument he's making there. He made the heaven and the earth. Does he need your temple to live in? That doesn't make any sense. If he made heaven and earth, he can't dwell in a temple. All right, verse 25. Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. Okay, again, I mentioned to you that the worshippers, they would bring food and they would offer it to these idols. They would take the leftover food and they would leave it out on these raised platforms and they thought their God would eat it. He says, the God that I'm telling you about, he gives life and breath to all things. Do you think he needs you to feed him? Do you think he needs you to build a house for him to live? He built the whole world and the universe. you think he needs you to build a temple? He gives you everything you breathe and eat. you think he needs you to bring the leftover meat? He's saying, what you are doing doesn't make any sense. Verse 26 and he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and is determined that there are pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. Okay, he said this one God has made the King James, New King James says, he's made from one blood every person who dwells on the face of the earth. One blood is probably a bad translation. Literally out of the Hebrew, it says out of one male, out of one person. That is one reason when you look back at the Bible, racism doesn't make any sense. We all came from one male, that is Adam. We all came from one person. That's an offensive thing to say to some people, and the Athenians were a proud race. They thought they were greater than anyone else. So Paul just said to them, there's only one God. Your whole city is based on something that's false. But he said it in a polite way. Then he said to them, we all came from one blood, from one male. And then he adds this. This is very interesting. He's determined the pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. How large a country gets, when it expands, who's going to be the king, who's going to uh, overtake that country. Listen to this. Uh, Daniel chapter 2 and verse 21 says that God changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and he raises up kings. Daniel 4.17 says, The Most High rules in the kingdoms of men and gives them to whomsoever he will. What does that mean? What do you take that to mean? He's in control of everything. Is God in control of who becomes the president? Yes. He rules, the Most High rules in the kingdoms of men, and he gives them to whomsoever he will. 
Is God in charge of who the president is? That's what, sure what it sounds like. He changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and he raises up kings. Was that just true in the Old Testament? It's not true anymore. God's no longer in charge of, of the world and the nations. Somebody might say, well, Don, if that's true, then why did he give us this president? Um, might say that. What's that? He gives us good kings and he gives us bad kings. I want you to keep that thought in your mind. Did the Lord sometimes give them, um, and I'm not saying he forced them to do it, because if a person chose to be wicked, that was their choice. God is not forcing that. But did the Lord ever use wicked kings to punish other people who were wicked? Yeah, can you give me an example of that? Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was one of the most wicked kings that existed. He was the king of Babylon. The Lord used him to punish his people. And he allows this wicked king to come and take over his people. And now they're ruled by a wicked king. Did God set up Nebuchadnezzar to be that wicked king? He did. He allowed him to do that. Well, then Nebuchadnezzar gets full of himself. Daniel chapter 4, King Nebuchadnezzar says, well, I rule the world. Look at this great thing that I have built. And you remember what happened to him? The Lord made him eat grass like a cow for some extended period of time until he realized, the verse we just read, Daniel 4, 17, until he could understand that the Most High rules in the kingdoms of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will. What he was saying to Nebuchadnezzar is, you didn't do this. I did this. Until you can get that through, my mind, through your mind, you'll stay a cow. And so he taught Nebuchadnezzar a lesson. Now, why would God allow these things to happen? Why would he allow a wicked ruler to come into power? Why would he allow Nebuchadnezzar to take over his people? Let's read the next verse. Look at verse 27. So that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. What does that mean? Now go back and look at verse 26. He has determined the pre-appointed times for the boundaries, for the dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord. Let's go back to the example. You have Nebuchadnezzar, and he comes and he takes over God's people in the nation of Judah. Why did God allow that? Why did he allow this wicked, sorry king to take over his people? It was discipline. It was punishment. What happened after they spent 70 years in captivity? They began to seek the Lord. They cried out to him. Go back to the Judges, the book of Judges, over and over and over the Lord would allow a wicked nation to take over and persecute his people, and then they would cry out to him, please help, and he would deliver them. And then, after some number of years, they would go back to wickedness, and the Lord would allow another nation. He would raise up a nation to take them over, and then they would be punished, and then they would cry out to the Lord. And that's the cycle over and over and over in the book of Judges. Why did God allow that? Look what he says, so that they may seek the Lord. 
Would you say, based on that, that it's a true thing that when persecution arises or bad things happen, that it is an opportunity or drives people sometimes to change and be better and seek the Lord? Does persecution help us? Absolutely, I think so. And I think that's what you see in the book of Judges. God planned it so that men's longing for God could be awakened, so that men would long uh, for more knowledge of his existence and his character. Put all this together, and this is what I see in Acts chapter 17. God has created in mankind the ability to understand that he exists. We, we know it. We are without excuse. The heavens declare the glory of God. It is evident so that we should look for him and we should long for him. In fact, he describes it here that we might grope for him. This word in the Greek carries with it the idea of feeling around in the darkness. We're, that is, we understand he's there because of the things that are made and we're without excuse. So we start grope. We're looking for him is what he says. Now, what happens when we start looking for him? Well, Matthew chapter 7 says that if we seek, what will happen? He will find. I believe the principles taught in the Bible are this. God has created within man that desire and that understanding that there is a greater power that exists, then it should drive us to grope, to look for him. And when we start doing that, if we truly will seek, God is good and God is just. And he will help us to find, if we seek, he will find. God is fair and God is reasonable and God is just and he is going to provide a way. I believe that's a principle he is teaching. So here are these people in Athens. They are looking for the unknown God. What happens? Paul is going to show up and he's going to preach to them. Now, what is... Um, the reaction, or what's the driving force? Let's go ahead and read, uh, let's see, what verse did we leave off here? 28. For in him we live and move and have our ever being, as also some of your own poets have said. Okay, Paul quotes from the, uh, the Greek poets, and he says, even your poets acknowledge that there is a God in whom we live and move and have our being. That is, he provides for us, he's greater than us. Even you recognize this. Why? God put that in us. We recognize it. The heavens declare the glory of God. All right, verse 29. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art or man's devising. Okay. He says, even you recognize that in God we live and move and have our being. Since we are the offspring of God, the children of God, we ought not to think of God as made out of gold or silver. Why would you say that? Children are like their parents, right? Don't children look like their parents? Absolutely they do. Sometimes people have seen my son and they say, oh, he looks just like you. And I just say, sorry about that, son. I, I don't know what to tell you. This is your future. I'm, I apologize. But children look like their parents. If we acknowledge, he says, even as your Greek poets acknowledge that we're the offspring of God, how can you say that we come from silver and gold? Does that make any sense? 
We are intelligent, rational, reasoning beings, and we came from an image made out of wood. How different is that from what's going on today, though? Isn't it the same thing? Don't we have people today who say, we as intelligent, rational, reasoning beings, we just came from nature, we came from monkeys, we came from evolution. It's the exact same thing, but just in, quote, a more intellectual form that we're being told this today. All right, we'll pick up next week in verse number 31.